right now I am sitting at my desk at home and I am wearing the, the brand is Hibernate, which gives you an indication as to the nature of the brand. Very 2020. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I got them. It was a gift from my sisters-in-law last year, but it, maybe it was uh, portentous, this gift, that, that the brand was Hibernate. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers, and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader, and of all the people I've interviewed over the years, I can tell you confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. I'm really excited to bring you this episode because I am a classic overthinker. Well, let's just say a recovering overthinker, which we all know overthinking is the enemy of confidence. Dr. Ali Walker is a human connection scientist and she's written a fascinating book called Get Conscious. She's done a TED talk about the same thing. She lectures at the UNSW and she has some answers for getting out of your own head. And I would say the same thing about being a thinkaholic, that you're never completely over it. Ali started her career as a criminal lawyer. She realised it most definitely wasn't for her. And now she coaches and immerses herself into researching why us humans do the things we do, our personality patterns, why we chase happiness. And she shares a transformational strategy for fighting the fear of getting out of our comfort zones. And then when you've located the feeling. Okay, now it's now in my stomach. Try to get an image for that feeling. So here is the insightful Dr. Ali Walker on claiming her confidence. Well, you are, as I mentioned, the author of Get Conscious, How to Stop Overthinking and Come Alive. And the reason I was really drawn to this book is I I would say I'm a recovering overthinker <laughs> and you are too. And you have had a really interesting journey to get to where you are today, which included a stop off as uh, a criminal lawyer at one point, <laughs> which, yeah. which you have described as um living a life that was living to please others. Just describe for us how you went through that and then how you realised you were an overthinker and mm. then overcame it. So it's really interesting because we we're having these conversations over the weekend. I was teaching a course around leadership and sustainability and a lot of uh, material came up around finding your why. I don't know if you're familiar with Simon Sinek's uh, TEDx oh, yeah. talk called Start With Why and his book of the same name. And he basically says that you need to understand why you do what you do before anything else. And I was sharing my why with them, which is all about building human connection. So everything I do is to hopefully enhance our sense of connection with ourselves and our sense of connection with each other. And they were saying, oh, yes, but that wouldn't, my students said, that wouldn't have applied to your past though. And it sort of threw me for a second. And then I realized, hold on a second, 
maybe being a criminal lawyer is still trying to improve human connection because I am taking toxic connection, you know, the worst kind of human connection and trying to improve it. But it was just a really unconscious way of doing that. So to back up and and answer your actual question, I was like all of us embedded with the model of power and success that our society delivers and that for me my version of that we all have different versions of that my version was you uh so my dad was a doctor and it was you almost if if you get the marks you could do law or medicine and I I decided to do law and I was always fascinated by language and relationships and I thought well law is perfect for me so I finished my law degree and then I became a criminal lawyer for the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions And on my first day, I felt so naive because I was sort of sent to a desk and, you know, there you go, sit there, there's your phone, here's how you dial out and here's your first trial, it starts in three weeks. And I sort of gingerly opened the folder of materials and it was an aggravated robbery and there were photos of the crime and I was sitting there thinking, I did not expect this from day one of this job. And then I sort of thought, oh my gosh, you know, that feeling of wanting to back away from something like I didn't, you know, this is, this doesn't feel very nice. Uh, And then, you know, obviously it was, you know, I was already well in and committed by that stage. And, and then I just, uh, it just felt like I was in a little bit of a washing machine, to be honest, or the way I described it as a pinball machine, you know, it was like being dropped in a pinball machine and, and seeing the worst of, of how we can treat each other and human connection. And, being young and females put on a lot of sexual assault cases. And the reason that I say that is because, well, every victim that I encountered was also young and female. And so the thinking was that they didn't want to re-traumatize those victims by having them tell their stories to men. So, and and the aggressors or um, defendants in all of those trials were also men. So I, I was repeatedly put on these cases and I was living with some friends at the time in a share house and I remember coming home and one of them had a job in PR, another one had a job in marketing and another one had a job at a not-for-profit. And I'd come home on a Friday night and it was like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. You know, I'd, I'd sit on the bus and look around at people and think, oh, what, what's gone on in your life? You know, what's made you unhappy or who's wounded you? And I started seeing the world in a different way. And I'm normally a real optimist. And I thought, this isn't how I see my life playing out. I can't imagine myself as a mother or, um, you know, getting married to someone and having this toxic work as, you know, my Monday to Friday. And it was, it sort of sent me spinning into a bit of a um, spiral because when you spend so long studying according to this world, this, this model of, of power and success that you've been uh, conditioned with, it's very difficult to unplug from that. So I found myself having to really deconstruct all of these mo- mental models that I had about how I wanted my life to look because it was almost like, here you go, you're a piece of a jigsaw puzzle and this is the part, this is the puzzle you've chosen and then I just didn't fit in that puzzle. So, um, yeah, that took a lot of, of deconstructing and I, I, it was a total spiral. I felt really lost. I felt ashamed is a, is a strong word, but I felt a bit ashamed and embarrassed that I'd spent so long studying and then wasn't suited to the final destination of that study. And so, yeah, it set me off on a completely different course. 
Yeah, you you just mentioned unplugging from that life and you you kind of explored a few different modalities to do that. What was that adventure that you then went on? Mm, so what I realised or what became very clear to me and for anyone listening, if anyone is feeling lost or is, is in that kind of experience in whatever area of life, whether it's relationships or work or family, uh notice the clues. That's what I would say. That's the advice I'd give. If you are feeling lost, there are some clues that you'll be given. And one of the clues that I was given is that when I was in that world of criminal law, what I was always fascinated by and drawn to is why people had acted the way that they had. I wasn't so interested in putting them in jail or punishing them for what they'd done, even though a lot of these people had done terrible things. And, um, you know, that's a whole other conversation about how our society punishes people and um, deals with trauma. But I was always fascinated by why they had done it. And so that was one of the the crumbs or the clues that I took away from that experience, that no matter how traumatic it was, or it was described later to me as vicarious trauma. So if you're in a situation where you're exposed to someone else's trauma, you, if you're a sensitive person or an empath, you will absorb that a bit of that trauma yourself. So it's not as if you've had the full experience, but it's almost like you've had 10% of the experience or 5% of that experience. And if you collect enough experiences of vicarious trauma, you end up with carrying around quite a lot. So anyway, the, the, the clue that I took is, okay, well, what I'm fascinated by and drawn to is human behavior, why people do the things that they do. So that led me then to go back and pursue a course of study in coaching and integral coaching and trying to understand the full person and why people behave the way that they do. And I also at the same time, and I'm someone who loves learning. So if if you're not someone who loves learning, don't be deterred by my my response to this. <laughs> uh, I went back and also did a master's because I thought my response to it, the experience was, hold on a second, I I don't know enough. You know, I, I thought I had all the, not, I didn't think I had all the answers. I wasn't arrogant like that, but I thought I knew what I wanted. And then that experience of, of diving into that water made me realize, oh, I really don't want that water. And I also realized how important it is to love the water you're in. So I thought, okay, this is my chance to actually go and be very intentional about uh, creating a new habitat for myself around work because I know I want to contribute. I know I have a lot to contribute and I really care. So, yeah, I, I went and studied a master's and then I went and studied coaching at the same time and that then sent me on a whole new adventure. And I've got to say in that transition, there was a, a few weeks where I had to um, I, so I left the DPP and then I started tutoring. So I became a university tutor and I started teaching at university and there was a bit of rocky, you know, how am I going to pay the rent <laughs> for that bit? Because I'd stopped being a lawyer and I'd started doing some tutoring and that was a different kind of earning. Um, so there's a bit of a lifestyle change in that as well. Again, it was very humbling because I had to sort of, ah, you know, I'd sort of had to say, yeah, that didn't work out. That path didn't work out, but I'm going on another one. And that is meaningful to me. And yes, yeah, so, so then the, the masters and the coaching kind of, I brought them together and then that turned into a PhD in group dynamics. And that then I, that PhD went to about 2012 and I finished my PhD and then two weeks later I had my first baby. So I guess, and, and then my first baby is now eight. I have two children now, eight and four. But I guess that's where I sort of see myself now. I'm still teaching at university, but I also design personality profiles and do group coaching 
And I feel like all the strands have been brought together, but there's still some meaning in the criminal law work that I did because it was still me trying to heal human connections. It was just kind of a toxic pond, you know, of, of and I didn't want to hang out there. So I, I found another way of doing that. But it was still me doing that, even though it seems, looking back on it and telling the story, it seems um, incongruous or like, you know, where did that come from? Why are we doing that? Um, <laughs> it, it was still me in there. It's just, uh, what I would say, the message for everybody listening, I think, is to always stay true to yourself. If you are unhappy, if you are finding it difficult to get out of bed, if you're not excited about going to work, if you're not excited about, and, and you know, when I say excited, <laughs> you know, there's still mornings where you sort of get in the car and think, oh, I'm a bit weary. But if you're not generally feeling like you can be your authentic self in whatever context you're in, go deeper. You know, uh, keep asking the questions. Don't just um, judge yourself into being okay with where you are. Now, you talk about how many of us are limiting our lives by focusing on a mirage that's not real. Mm. I'd love you, and you begin the book with this great story about the mirage, which really reflects that and um, illustrates that beautifully. What is the mirage that most of us are using to limit our lives? Mm. The mirage is summed up by one sentence, which is, I will be happy when... So I will be happy when I get married. I will be happy when I have children. I'll be happy when I retire. I'll be happy on my wedding day. I'll be happy when I'm on holidays. Oh, and we always see our happiness. Well, there's two things that are problematic about the I will be happy when statement. The first one is that happiness is a really difficult goal to have in our life because happiness is if you think about happiness as being an emotion or an emotional state, it's just like the weather and happiness is sunshine or happiness is the weekend. So if you're always striving for happiness, it's almost like saying, I can only feel good on a Saturday or a Sunday, or I can only feel good when the sun is shining. So I prefer uh, to have a mental model of meaning in my life rather than happiness. So if you are striving for meaning, then even an experience of, of melancholy or anxiety can actually be positive in, in the, the scheme of things if it brings you more meaning. So if it enhances your meaning, if you can bring consciousness to that experience, then it can be positive. If you are striving for happiness, and, and I'm someone who I'm, I'm classic, all of the things I'm talking about, by the way, I am the perfect victim of. So it's not <laughs> like I was born going, oh, yes, where can I find meaning? You know, I, w I was the person saying, I'll be happy when I'm a lawyer. I'll be happy when I finish my law degree. I'll be happy when I'm married. And, and then you do enough of those things. And especially that's why it was such a gift to not enjoy being a lawyer because I realized how incorrect or flawed that thinking was so if you're striving for meaning then it basically brings light to your entire life experience because I remember having babies and you know you're cleaning the high chair they've got food all over the high chair or they've just been sick or and it's very difficult if you've got the I'll be happy when model it's very difficult to enjoy those moments. It's very difficult to enjoy cleaning your teeth. It's very difficult to enjoy getting petrol. It's very difficult to enjoy, you know, 
most of the, the mundane repetitive parts of life are not, you wouldn't describe them as happy in inverted commas. So if you're always waiting for happiness and I'll be happy when, then feeling good is always at some point in the distant future. It's not here now. And I think being happy, being content, finding meaning in whatever is happening happening in front of you is the actual key. So the two things that are problematic about the statement, I'll be happy when, is the first thing is happy and the second thing is when because what you're saying is I'll feel good in the future. That's the, that's the translation of that statement. I will feel good in the future. I'll feel good in the future. And then all you're doing is creating more experiences to feel good in the future. And I just didn't, I didn't think that that was satisfactory for, for my entire life because you can live an entire life then without actually embodying what is right in front of you. You know, I think a lot of people apply that thinking to confidence as well, because I hear so many people saying, I will feel more confident when Mm. X, Y, Z, it's usually when they've, you know, experienced getting a promotion or um, lost weight or whatever it is. Mm. It's it's about future projection when in fact, um, in my experience, you gain confidence by doing the hard things (laughs) and it's more of an action rather than a destination. Exactly. And confidence, when I embraced confidence, and I, I don't think it's ever a, it's something that you've ever ticked, you know, it's not a box to tick. It's something that you reflect on and think, oh, I'm, I'm a lot more confident than I was this time last year or even this time last week. And it's something that's always growing and expanding, which is beautiful. But confidence for me comes from being as authentic as I can be. So uh, I find when I'm not confident is when I'm trying to be some else or someone else or when I put on that bravado whereas when I am confident I'm happy to be completely authentic and I have this sort of if you don't if you don't want me or if I'm not for you that's okay you know you're not my you're not my person or you're not my people and and that's okay just just getting to the point where you think this is this is me this is who I am someone's uh, one of my students said yesterday she came up to me at the end she said um do you mind if I talk to you you know the things you were saying yesterday about leadership and and mediation they were so interesting to me and and I just feel like I've missed the boat and the best quote I've ever heard on missing the boat is if you miss the boat it wasn't your boat yeah I love that so I think for me a lack of confidence often manifested itself in always feeling like I'd missed the boat like oh I I need you know I've I've done a law degree and then now I'm a lawyer and I don't like it I missed the boat I should have studied psychology or I should have done you know I should have been always looking back and thinking that there was this some this this mythical boat that I should have been on that I somehow missed and so what I find builds my confidence the most is just saying then it wasn't for you then that wasn't your path and my mom is a sort of like a she's a like a guide in this area because she's very wise in the area of saying that's not your path if if that didn't happen for you then that wasn't your path and i think often a lack of confidence comes from comparing ourselves to others and comparing our paths to other paths and um that's that's where we get lost that's where the spirals start 
Absolutely. And speaking of that spiral, I think, you know, getting back to overthinking, Mm. overthinking can keep you stuck in so many ways. And I'd love to know what is going on when we are overthinking and how do we get the awareness to step in and stop it? Mm. So it's almost like, so I, it's, it's one thing to say that I'm an overthinker. I actually think I'd go beyond that and say I'm a thinkaholic because when, if you think of someone who's an alcoholic, and it's a weird comparison to make, but someone who's an alcoholic would, if they're in recovery, they would say that every single day of their life, they need to make a choice to not drink. And I would say the same thing about being a thinkaholic, that you're never completely over it because you always have the, the, predisposition or the tendency to go there because your brain has developed a pathway. And and so when we are overthinking, what happens is there's some kind of trigger or stimulus that sets off a set of reactions in our brain. And then where, where some people would just say, oh, well, and move on and just let that thought go. You know, it's almost like if, if a hot potato is coming towards you, some people would just move out of its way and then it just passes on by and then it's not a non-issue for them. Whereas someone who is an overthinker or a thinkaholic will grab that hot potato and even though it is, it's painful to hold it because it's so hot in your hands, you can't let go. So then what happens is the, the trigger happens and then the brain almost over, it gives it so much attention and so much focus that it's a like a hyper focus on this thought that is ultimately quite unhelpful and then it turns into the best way of describing it or thinking about it is a spiral so we start off if you think of those you know those corkscrew slippery dips so you start off mm. at the top and then the thoughts just go round and round and once you're on that slide it's very difficult to because it's slippery and it's downhill it's very difficult to stop yourself and climb back up to the top. So sometimes we just need to forgive ourselves and um, let it run its course. So the, the worst thing we can do is judge ourselves while we're in it. But there was a 2007 study done at the University of California that said naming our emotions while we're experiencing them can actually reduce their intensity and power over us. So what I do now, if I find myself in a bit of a spiral, I will actually say aloud, and it is helpful to say this aloud, not if you're in public. So I'd say (laughs) (laughs) make sure you're um, on your own or with some loved ones. I will actually say, I am overthinking this. I am overthinking this. And I'll say it maybe once or twice just to give the thought the perspective that it needs. But what is happening for us is that we have a, a mental pathway Uh, a brain pathway that is accustomed to taking a very triggered thought and it won't be you won't overthink everything there'll be so again if you're someone who is an overthinker ask yourself what is the theme of topics that I tend to overthink so for me again it's generally relationships because that's my why, that's my calling, that's the thing that means the most to me. So there might be people who overthink money stuff or, you know, can't go to sleep at night because they're remembering a financial decision they made 10 years ago and they might overthink that. I don't overthink that kind of stuff. Um, So you you tend to have a genre or a, a theme of topics that you overthink and all 
again, to be to be kind to ourselves, all it means if we're overthinking is that something is deeply, um, we, we are deeply passionate about that area. Oh, okay. So that's that's a way of flipping it and making yeah. it a positive yeah. and seeing it as the clue. Exactly. Again, find the clues. So um, I had a great mentor. So Matt Elliott, I do some work with him. He's actually the, the very unlikely mentor for me and uh, a rugby league coach <laughs> and a former NRL player. And he, I do work with him in a program called The Change Room where we work with injured workers who are on workers' compensation to, in, in an effort to get them back to functional life. And so there's a motivational program and I'm one of the mentors in that program and Matt started the program. There's some other NRL players. So it's, it's a whole lot of NRL players and me. <laughs> People say to me, how did you end up doing that? I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but I love the work. It's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And once I was talking to the other mentors, and actually, you know, one is a, um, a breath coach from the Gold Coast. His name's Nam Baldwin. He's another mentor and he does some incredible work with sports teams but also with movie stars. So if they have roles that involve them doing some kind of maybe underwater work or uh, some kind of fight scene or some kind of, you know, new physical activity that they haven't done before, he will work with them as a performance coach. And there's also um, Mick Fanning, the, the surfer, his coach, is involved in the um, in the program as well. So it's an amazing program. Once we all went out for dinner and I was having a conversation with all these mentors and I said, and they're all men, and I said, do you ever get nervous when you're about to speak? Because I'm a speaker, I speak all the time and I love speaking, but sometimes I find that I go in and I almost second guess or I, I think to myself, is this the time that I'm not going to be good? Is this the time that I'm not going to do yes. a great job? Like, is this the time? And I almost had this like little demon, I like, asked the question in my head and I was, I was asking them and you know, the worst thing when you, <laughs> when you feel like you've been vulnerable with a group of people, they all look at you and go, no, that never happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, um, yeah, okay. Let's talk about just something asking else. for a friend. <laughs> yeah, asking for a friend, exactly. But I did know, I ran with it. I was like, oh, well, this does happen to me and it happens to me quite regularly and I just wondered if it happened to you. And Matt Elliott turned to me. So I'm feeling quite vulnerable at this stage because I felt like, you know, we're all talk, we're all speakers and we're all coaches and I'm there saying that sometimes I get, you know, I, I overthink whether I'm going to perform. And I guess that's the performance anxiety. And Matt turned to me and he said, You're, you only think about the way that you perform and get concerned about it and get nervous about it because you care so much about how you contribute and how you affect people. Mm. So if you didn't care you wouldn't want to improve. You're always wanting to improve. You don't want to be stagnant. And you're also someone that's motivated by forward momentum. So if you feel like you are staying in the one place or you're not growing, then that for you is like death. So of course, you're going to experience a need, a drive to get better. But instead of experiencing it as being nerves or anxiety, experience it as just the drive of a high performer, someone who always wants to get better. And I think flipping these things can be life-changing because that was, he almost like, um, he, what's the opposite of when someone casts the spell? What it went, how do you undo a spell? Oh, he, uh, he like removed the spell, whatever. I don't, can't yeah, remember the word. Um, yeah. but he, he got rid of the spell for me because I was under a spell and that spell was 
and I don't mean that literally, like I'm not actually talking about witchcraft, but it, the spell I had put on myself in my mind and that spell was you are nervous because you're worried about whether you are going to perform. And so you, you have performance anxiety. That was the story I was telling myself. And then Matt actually changed that story for me and he said, no, you are driven because you are a high performer. You're always striving to achieve and improve and that's why you want to get better. So instead of getting anxious about it, just ask yourself, what can I tweak for next time? What can I try? What can I do differently? What can I introduce that's new? And what an absolute gift he gave you. Oh, there, there are people and that's, you know, when I think of the word angel, I think that we are all each other's angels because there will be times in our lives where we perform that, when we offer that gift to someone else and it's the gift of insight or wisdom where we can actually genuinely change someone's life for the rest of their lives just because we offer a new perspective. Now you were just saying that that was the story you were telling yourself for so long and you mentioned that we can have more positive scripts that are ready to go. Do you Mm. advocate that we sit and think about those triggers and almost kind of write down a new story and then practice that so that in the moment we can revert to that more helpful story? Yes, and this sounds strange, but the wor- as anyone who is an overthinker will know, the worst time to try to choose better thoughts is when you are in the grip <laughs> of overthinking. It's like yes. when you are in a, in a fit or, or of, of whatever emotion. You might be angry or annoyed or what, and someone says, calm down. You know, it's the worst possible. There's that great quote. I don't know who said it, but it goes around the internet. It says, like, at no time in the history of telling a woman to calm down (laughs) has she ever calmed down. (laughs) And that's exactly the same as overthinking. At no time in the history of overthinking has being told to stop overthinking been helpful. And so what I find is that when you're feeling very calm and reflective and kind to yourself, that's the time to actually... Maybe just write down a few alternatives you can try when you are in the grip of overthinking. So one thing that I found that was really helpful is whatever you are doing, whatever you, because there tends to be an addictive behavior associated with the addictive thought pattern. So the addictive thought pattern is overthinking. It's the spiral. It's the catastrophizing that, oh my gosh, but then what if, what if, what if, what if? And then you sort of know if you're asking yourself a, a lot of what if questions, you're in the grip of overthinking. What we then tend to do is we have a behavior associated with the overthinking pattern. And that behavior is different for everyone. In my case, I would call a friend or a family member and then I would overanalyze the thing I was overthinking with them. So I would then want to involve another person. So then it was almost like drama on top of overthinking. So in my case, the best, the advice I give to people is whatever you tend to do when you're overthinking, start doing the opposite. Whereas for some people, so, so in my case, doing the opposite looks like meditating or going for a walk or doing something practical in my body. Um, even I could even have a cup of tea or eat something because that will bring me into my body. Having said that, there may be someone out there who goes into the overthinking and catastrophizing and then goes for a run almost in a bid to get rid of the thoughts and the run becomes quite compulsive. Mm. So I would say to that person, maybe it's a good idea to pick up the phone and call someone you love because that might bring you back into the, into the moment. So, and then, you know, there'd be, might be another person out there who's overthinking and then they start eating 
in a way that's not helpful for them. So whatever you're doing when you overthink, start doing the opposite to bring in the other. So, so we've, all, we've obviously got the, the mind, body, the spirit, whatever you need to, to bring yourself out of mind, out of thoughts and into your body or into your spirit. That's what I would suggest people do. So whatever you're doing now, do the opposite. You're listening to Claiming Your Confidence with me, Katrina Blowers, and human connection scientist, Dr. Ali Walker. Stick around. Ali is about to share a game-changing strategy for fighting the fear of doing new things when you are in the moment. You also talk about you have this beautiful process that you do, and this is, you know, you you were mentioning before that a lot of this is because you've experienced it yourself, and I love how honest you are and you say you still don't have a lot of this stuff worked out and, and maybe, you know, on a weekly basis when you have an unhelpful thought or you find yourself attaching yourself to those negative thought loops, mm. you have a process where you begin by figuring out where it's showing up in your body. And you say that if you tune into that, it's different for everyone. And you can use that kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Mm, mm, Definitely. And you're very kind to say that this happens weekly because it's more of a daily (laughs) daily experience. Uh, Okay. So this process that I use is called focusing. The reason that I love it so much is that when people from our culture, and when I say culture, I'm talking about Western culture, very uh, hyper-stimulated, very connected, very sort of individualistic culture, we are prone to overthinking. Now, when we meditate, that I, I liken that to trying to land a high-speed a, a plane that's flying through a jet flying through the air, and meditation is landing that plane. So if you are thinking of a jet going as fast as it can, it's obviously not going to be able to land because the jet actually needs to slow down and then come down through the sky and then it can land, then it's appropriate for land landing. So I would say if anyone is struggling with just sitting down and meditating, it's because your your brain is, is like that jet and you sitting down and meditating is like landing. And so it's going to feel jarring. It's going to feel impossible and then your brain won't be able to do it. So focusing for me is landing the plane. It actually takes you from where you are in the sky and actually takes you down to the ground in, so it readies you for focusing, sorry, for meditation. So focusing is the processing of landing the brain. So how that works is this. You use whatever is on your mind or in your body as the source of your reflection. So you sort of sit down and when you're starting off, I can now do this when I'm driving. Don't worry, I don't shut my eyes or anything. But um, <laughs> if, I, if something's on my mind or I, I feel myself in a, in a loop, and for anyone listening, you might you might be thinking to yourself like, wow, this sounds, this sounds like an intense maintenance process. And it, for me, it definitely is. Some people may have been gifted with brain chemistry that is quite straightforward. So they may get up in the morning and this, this is um, possible for a lot of people. A lot of people have this kind of brain chemistry where they get up in the morning, they eat breakfast, they get dressed, they go out to work, and you know life's not that complicated so I think that's my partner yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) that's him yeah if if they would hear the way that I'm talking about how I maintain my brain they'd be thinking geez that sounds like a lot of work and 
And, and my response is, yes, it is a lot of work because I have quite sensitive brain chemistry and I'm just coming to terms with that. And I prefer that kind of language rather than, because I don't, I've never been diagnosed with anything. Um, you know, maybe it would have been appropriate at different times in my life for me to have been, but it's not that I say that I'm like living with anything or, or have any mental health complications. Having said that, I believe that a lot of us out there um, need to maintain our our brains and our thoughts in, in a much more considered and intentional way than we currently do. So if you're not someone who gets up in the morning, has your breakfast, go out to work, do your work, speak to people, come home, go to sleep, maybe play some sport, it's not that complicated, then um, maybe you're not someone who needs to do the daily or weekly focusing. But meditation helps anyone, hands down, no matter what it is. But some people might say, you know, I meditate when I'm snowboarding or I meditate when I'm in my car, just, you know, with, with, no, with silence and, and I, I, or when I'm going for a run. Everyone is, is different, so we have to sort of start there. But for anyone who is more like me and feels like um, you need a little bit more maintenance of, of your emotional state, then here's how you do focusing. So you start off with whatever is on your mind and it may be something bothering you. It may be something you're really excited about. It doesn't have to be negative. So you can start off um, focusing by saying, so I tend to do this now when I get into bed at night, not necessarily the best time to do it because, you know, for whatever reason, it's the only time I can do it because I have two children and it's the only time I know I'm not going to get interrupted. So I can't do it in the morning and I work during the day or I'm with the kids. So at night helps me. So when I get into bed, what's on my mind is generally what's happened that day or what has just happened or a conversation I might have just had or something that's going to happen the following day. And then I'll use that as the uh, the source or the beginning of the process. So I'll say, I'm just thinking, trying to think of an example. Okay, so let's say it was Friday night for me, last Friday night, and I'm going off to sleep thinking I have to teach tomorrow morning this course. And so that's what's on my mind. So then I, then we ask ourselves the question, where is this in my body? Where's this thought or feeling or fear or excitement, whatever emotion it is, or it might be discomfort, where is this located in my body? Where's this discomfort located in my body? And then for me, because I hadn't done any face-to-face teaching at all in 2020, this is my first experience of face-to-face teaching at a university, I've done it you know, outside of university, but I was thinking, oh, this is, you know, a bit uncomfortable for me because I haven't done this at all this year and it's, it's feeling a bit new even though I've done it before. So it, I'm feeling this sensation in my, in my stomach. And then when you've located the feeling, okay, now it's now in my stomach, try to get an image for that feeling. So the image might be something like, oh, I feel like I have little mice you know, running around my stomach, really scurrying and scurrying, almost like they're, they're in a, um, on a hamster wheel, just running, 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 running. And then, so then you get a really clear image for the feeling that you're feeling. So in my case, it's mice. It might then change. So you might go, oh, the mice now feel like a flame. So now I feel like I have flames in my stomach. So as, as creative as you like, just go where the, the felt sense takes you. Then when you settle on an image, so let's just say I stick with the mice, like I have mice scurrying around my stomach, you then ask the question, and this is the transformative question, what's it like from the mouse's point of view? 
Hmm. What's it like for the mice? Because the whole idea is that you have now become the discomfort. So you are, you are one, you are aligned with whatever is bothering you. It's not outside of you. It's now inside of you. And you've taken that thing that you were projecting out into the world and you've now located it at some part, in some part of your body. And then you ask yourself, what's it like from the mouse's point of view? And then the mouse might say, I always feel like I have to be something for other people. And I, I'm, I lose myself in that. You know, I don't get to just stay in my body. I have to feel like I go out of my body. I feel like it's hard work. And then suddenly I've just landed on the source of my discomfort and it's the wisdom of my own body and the wisdom of my own consciousness rather than having to, you know, how quickly did I just do a therapy on myself? Amazing. As as opposed to having to make an appointment, go and talk to someone for an hour and a half, you know, you get lost in the rabbit holes of talking about, oh, that in my childhood and then that and that. And then you can just do focusing on yourself every single night and it's sort of like therapy. And then the next question you ask the mouse, and if anyone's just tuned in at this point, they'll be thinking, <laughs> what on earth is going on? Who is asking a mouse question? This girl's crazy. So the next question you then say is, what do you need in order to feel healed? What do you need to be healed? So you've asked the mouse what it's like from its point of view. The mouse has said, and yeah, for anyone not catching on, the mouse is you. The mouse is some part of you, whatever it is, some part of your vulnerability, your inner child, whatever that is. And that, that part of you has just said, I feel like when you're around others in the setting of teaching, I feel like you lose yourself. I feel like you try to be everything for them and you don't stay in your body. Okay. So then the next question becomes, what do you need in order for us to heal this? And then, so it might be as simple as, okay, well, when you're teaching tomorrow, and geez, I wish I'd actually done this focusing on Friday night because it would have been really helpful. I would have used it over the weekend. <laughs> um, but it might be, okay, so when you're teaching, maybe just check in with yourself every hour to check that you're not feeling lost, that you're not feeling like you're in other people's energy and not staying in your own. You know, maybe mm. it's, it's about being intentional about having a break where you take yourself out of that group setting only for five minutes and just, you know, do some breathing and come back to yourself. You know, it can be as simple as that. It's not always drastic, the the change that you make. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that process. I think that's going to be so helpful for me and many other people. I'd love to know, we we all know how detrimental overthinking can be, Mm -hmm. but what are some of the positives for having that sensitive brain chemistry? What does Mm. that mean for us? Well, do you know what? I actually think that people who are overthinkers tend to be the best nurturers. This is my theory because Let's let's unpack or deconstruct what overthinking looks like. If you're catastrophizing, what what you're essentially doing, a nice way of looking at that is that you are um, you are a risk analyst. You are assessing all the possible risks. You're thinking of all the things that could go wrong, and you're trying to then manage those risks. I want that person as my mother because, <laughs> and my and honestly, and my mum has this sensitive brain chemistry as well. I want that person because she'll be there lying in bed at night going, is she warm enough? You know, did I put enough, does she have enough blankets on her? That's, that's the beautiful side of it. So if you're, I hope you've got goosebumps right now if I'm, if I'm talking about you, because it means that you are sensitive not only to your own brain chemistry, but you're sensitive to others. 
So you're looking at someone and you are able to read the micro expression of someone in a group and turn to them and say, are you all right? Are you okay? What just happened then for you? Because you are so sensitive, not only to yourself, but to the environment you're in. And then you're able to use that awareness, that hyper awareness to make little adjustments in the environment, to make sure that other people are thriving and and feel nourished. So I call overthinkers really like hyper survivors. They're people who are aware of the group. The problem is when we're not aware that we are overthinking, we're not aware of the reason underneath it, or in this modern world, the kind of the model of nurturing has changed. So maybe in generations gone by, we, you and I would have five children each and we'd just be so busy thinking about all of our children that, you know, or the grandparents or, you know, maybe we'd be in a, in a hunter-gathering community uh, 100,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago. And, and we'd feel occupied, you know, there'd be a reason for it, or we'd always have to be thinking about threats to the community because there were predators around, there were animals around, we were living in the wild. We're not living in the wild anymore, we're living in our homes. And for many people, we're safe, not everyone is physically safe. But for a lot of us, we're physically safe. So that threat's removed. We also don't have as many emotional um, responsibilities because we're out, we're now out working. So where does all that energy go? That is so much energy that's stored up. It's almost like the same, you know, how they talk about people, um, the hunter in some people and they're sitting in a classroom. So if you have the energy of a hunter and you're used to sort of scanning the environment for risks and being very physical, you're not really going to love a classroom. So I think, I think that's where it comes from. I think it comes from our evolution. We'll probably, um, we probably in our evolution, we have the DNA of our ancestors who were nurturers or people who protected the community. So if we have strong protective instincts and all of those things are beautiful. It's just about actually protecting ourselves from thoughts that are unhelpful and actually telling ourselves, you know, in, in the modern world we live in, a lot of these thoughts need to be flipped so that we're actually nurturing ourselves first. And I think, you know, when it comes to rewriting some of those scripts to remind ourselves of the positives in the moment rather than beating ourselves up on being overthinkers, reminding ourselves of some of the beautiful side benefits Mm. is so important. Mm. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to be doing, I think, you know, I'm not a big journaler, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I think I think I am going to start paying attention to some of those thoughts and start, I think, writing it down on paper will be really helpful rather than thinking about it and hoping that it comes up in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you're doing now, do the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now we are getting to the end of our time together. So I would love to know what would be your number one confidence tip that you would give someone uh, who's perhaps overthinking and it is limiting their lives? Mm -hmm. So I would say that the only true confidence comes from being our authentic selves. If we're looking for confidence outside of ourselves or in some future state, then it's not true confidence. Yeah, excellent. Is there a book you've read apart from your amazing books, which I will link to in the show notes, or even an inspirational quote that's helped you on your way in your confidence story? So I have something on my my phone, my screensaver on my phone at the moment. So it's it says, everything comes to you at the right time. Be patient. That's one. And then the other one is 
uh, sorry, this isn't like an inspirational quote, obviously. So, and the other one is you are exactly where you are meant to be. So those, yeah. those ideas tend to help me and they're not actually, oh, and the book is that I love on this is Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now yeah, and A New so Earth, good. his other book, because it just brings you back into the moment. Anything that can bring you back into your present moment is going to be useful for you. Yeah, definitely. And I love the series that he's done with Oprah where he deconstructs mm. chapter by chapter the new earth, a new earth. I saw him uh, speaking. He's so it's so funny because there's just no bells and whistles. He just kind of <laughs> comes out, he sits on the stage and he's just like, Hi. <laughs> and everyone's there like so excited to see him. I know. And talk about no ego. He, Yeah, he's definitely let go of any shred of ego that he perhaps once had. Uh, what do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome or goal attached to it? Mm, so I'm getting better at trying to do a lot more of this because when I, I think was, overthinkers find that really hard yeah, don't you because you need to be there going but what's the point what's the point of this like what <laughs> what will I get out of it and I used to you know I used to describe myself as being so goal orientated that it everything had to be linked to some sort of future outcome and I think the greatest act of self-love that I'm currently trying to engage in is just doing things for the sake of it so uh, on Friday I had a massage because I knew I'd be spending the weekend working and it was just sort of a, an act of indulgence and self-love and also holidays, which is really hard in 2020 to mm-hmm. say that as a, a, you know, something you do for pure joy, but also just hanging out with my family. So I'm realizing more and more the importance of rituals with our, with my, so my husband and my two children, we do things like family movie night on Friday nights. And the older they get, the more I love those sorts of rituals. You know, you, you sort of we might go for a bushwalk on Saturdays. And when they're younger, it's very difficult because they don't understand what even a ritual means. They don't understand the tradition. But I just find they're nice little milestones throughout the week. That um, But I'm not very good at – I'm actually – this is something that I'm trying to get better at, doing things for pure joy rather than for some future outcome. Oh, um, me too. Don't worry. Why do you yeah. think it's one of my questions that I ask everyone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a bit of research. But I think, yeah, right. spending time with loved ones, spending time with um, – I love going out for dinner with my friends. That's that's pure joy for me. Spending time with my husband, my children. Um, my mum and I go for a walk once a week and I take our dog. We take our dog for a walk as well. And um, writing brings me pure joy. Not always. I always love – there was a great quote that says, I love having written. I don't like writing. Oh, and that's me. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So yeah. when you've done it, you feel good and you sort of go, that was great in retrospect, but um, making yourself do it. Why do we prevent, like, why do we stop ourselves? Like, why do we think of all the excuses for why we shouldn't do something joyful? It's really something that I spend a lot of time mulling over. But again, that's probably <laughs> the problem. Just do it. Just do it. Oh, swimming, swimming in the ocean. Absolutely oh, yeah. love it. That's, that is therapy for me. Yeah, me too. I Mm. love it. Um, And what are you working on right now in your own confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in your life? Well, that's a great question. So I've always felt like I had to align myself with some kind of brand or organization in order to be a success in inverted commas. So I've neglected things that I might have loved to do for my own business. And so what I'm doing now for my own confidence journey is to say, do you know what? It's okay. It's enough that I am working for myself. 
it's enough that I'm creating things for people on off my own steam and not having to align myself with some impressive brand or organization in order to derive my own confidence because I used to sort of think that it was important to to have that alignment and then it's almost like if we're if you imagine that our confidence is like um, a power plug so we're just we're walking around with a power plug looking to plug into a source of confidence and ultimately that source of confidence should be ourselves but before we realize it we've sort of we're plugging into other people and brands and um, jobs and organizations and other aspects of identity in order to build confidence but it's never going to give us what we genuinely need, which is plugging into ourselves. And so that's what I'm working on now. And the pure joy, I think really they shouldn't be linked, but the, no, it's it's odd in our mind that those two things are linked, doing things just for the sake of pure joy and confidence. But actually when I do things more and more just to feel joyful, that's what builds my confidence. And it's in those moments of pure joy I'm learning. It's where you truly find yourself. Mm, mm, and that's confidence. So that for me, confidence is another name for myself. That's that's Ali. It's, it's just me being me. And when you are in pure joy, that is you being you and therefore you derive confidence from that because it's a sort of a feeling of invincibility. You know, I don't care what other people think of me because I'm feeling such joy. And so perhaps joy is the pathway to confidence. Ali, I could talk to you for hours and I'm so grateful <laughs> to you for sharing, <laughs> for sharing everything that you have and also sharing that focusing technique. Thank oh, you my so pleasure. much I hope, for I joining me. I hope people me. feel um, nourished. I hope people get something out of it. And, um, and yeah, I loved it. I love talking to you too. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turn. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.